minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. Dr. J.W. Richards is a research assistant professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, and the executive editor of The Stream. Richards is, Richards is author or editor of more than a dozen books, including the New York Times bestsellers Infiltrated, published in 2013, and Indivisible, published in 2012, The Human Advantage, and Eat Fast Feast. His newest book is The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Expert Turned, in, turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Dr. Richards, welcome to the Biohacking Secrets Show. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks. I'm pumped to chat. Let's, let's dive right into some of the good stuff and we'll mm -hmm. let the flow take us wherever it wants. Um, how dangerous is COVID-19? Well, it depends on who you are. And so if you are over 70 and you have so-called comorbidities, so let's say you're obese, you have lung problems, you have type 2 diabetes, um, you're, that is, you're probably nearing the end of your life, and it can be fairly dangerous. If you're healthy and you're young and you don't have any of these things, it's actually uh, not that dangerous. It's, it's something like the flu. People don't like it when you make that comparison. But the, the irony is that it's quite different from the flu in that it really differentiates different populations. So if you're under 20, you're about four or five times more likely to get sick and die from complications of the flu than from COVID-19. If you're over 70 and you have problems, you're more likely to die from complications of COVID-19 than the flu. And so it sort of averages out. And so that's why it's, it's hard to make a kind of simple generalization because it really depends upon who you are. But I think that that emphasizes why a public health response needs to take account of these differences as opposed to treating the entire population as if we're all exactly alike. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's, I mean, there's growing, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even want to say division, because I think a lot of people are actually starting to recognize the divide and conquer, conquer tactic and say, mm -hmm. all right, this is ridiculous. Let's instead awaken to our oneness and, you know, recognize that like left, right, we need, we need both, right? Mm -hmm. you, need, you need both the left hemisphere of your brain and the right hemisphere <laughs> of your brain to make good decisions depending on, you know, what, what is the circumstance you're facing. Um, but there's, let's say there's different hypotheses. There's, there's mm -hmm. people who believe the mainstream narrative that this is like a naturally occurring virus that right. came out of, you know, a wet market in China. Mm -hmm. There's people who believe that it was a bioweapon yeah. that was produced, you know, a, a chimeric virus that was produced via gain of functions research mm -hmm. and um, intentionally released in, in order to justify a lot of the, the lockdowns and, you know, this um, consolidation of wealth that's taken place and, right. you know, similar to um, what a lot of people believe happened with with 9-11, where mm -hmm. that ushered in the Patriot Act, et cetera. Um, then there's people who believe that a lot of the symptomology that people are experiencing is electrical illness, mm -hmm. you know, due to the rollout of 5G and this, this radiation is making people sick. Some people think it's a combination thereof. Where do you kind of sit? I mean, it's, it's interesting that whether we believe it's a naturally occurring virus or something that was a bioweapon, it's interesting that neither Koch's postulates nor Rivers postulates have been met 
that almost mm-hmm. a year in. So I'm kind of curious on what your philosophy is. Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, you've sort of laid out the whole spectrum of possibilities there, and there's a million sort of variations in that. Uh, but on the, I would say the most benign hypothesis is that this is just a purely natural virus. It came from a bat that, you know, this is the original story that was in a wet market in Wuhan. The bats don't come from that part of China, so it would have had to have been imported. And it just, it got out. It, it, there was a mutation and it became uh, susceptible to humans. It could be transmitted by humans. That's the that's one extreme. Uh, there, there, on the other extreme would be these, you know, something that you're saying, it's actually something completely different, unrelated to the virus. And then somewhere in the middle, I would say, would be uh, the idea that it actually, it leaked at least ac- probably accidentally from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I think at the moment that's, you know, now there are a bunch of other things that are possible, but I would say based on the evidence, If we had to guess in this book, The Price of Panic, that I wrote with a a biologist and a statistician, we argued that the most likely hypothesis based on what we know right now, is that it leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We thought from the very beginning that this wet market story sounded like a cover story. It just seemed very unlikely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fact that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is there, that we already knew that they're doing work uh, on these bats, um, and that the State Department a couple of years ago, now it's been about three years, was actually worried and issued a report to the U.S. government saying, we're, we're worried about uh, about this lab. Now, there is also the discussion that this was not a naturally occurring virus. It's not exactly a bioengineered weapon, but that it was uh, the result of this gain, a gain of function experiments and effectively trying, you know, you basically manipulate a virus in order to make it more dangerous, not to kill people, but to try to create vaccines. And then it leaked out. I actually think at the moment, um, that's all, we've always thought that was a possibility. We just think that we need more evidence for that because the reason is that the virus, if you look at the sequence, the RNA sequence, it is very similar to naturally occur, the naturally occurring viruses that we know are in these bats. And so it's, it's perfectly possible that natural mutations could have, could have led to this. It's not some highly exotic virus that you would expect from a bioweapon. On the other hand, if you're doing gain of function experiments, basically what that's doing is it's speeding up what could happen over time in nature. And so it's, I think, honestly, it's gonna require us to get some more research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology to figure that out. Now, I would say, uh, however you sort of go with that, let's, I think probably it was an accidental leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and we'll find out, hopefully, if it was a result of bioengineering or not. The effects are the same either way. So certain people, I don't think that this is a conspiracy by Amazon and big tech uh, to, to destroy small business and, and, and help themselves. That has been the effect, right? The effect has been that it's been very good for the digital economy, very bad for the sort of the analog economy. And so you can t- ask those questions and say, okay, who benefited from that? Even if you don't think, okay, the people that benefited necessarily orchestrated it because any event's gonna benefit certain people. I do think it, it, the long and the short of it is, is that the the People's Republic of China and the government of China definitely bears responsibility for this, either because of a, a leak, which is itself a disaster, or, or something uh, much more sinister. For sure, for sure. And, you know, with this was largely something that I came to realize in, in these past 12 months with a lot of how this um, has been handled, you know, and it was, was recognizing that there's a certain amount of what we see on 
the news and television that is like clearly theater. Yeah. And, 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 you know, some of it's valid depending on what sources you go to, but how do you differentiate between what is clearly theater and mm -hmm. something that, you know, is, is designed to push an agenda. And cause there's a lot of people that see that and they they, they struggle to, and it, mm -hmm. it, it makes them very angry or upset or fearful and pulls them into these lower states of vibration and consciousness. <laughs> yeah. How do you differentiate between what you should pay attention to that seems valid and legit and what seems like uh, political or, you know, news theater? Yeah, it's very, very hard. Um, I'd say we live at this moment in which if you have discernment, I mean, I think that's honestly um, the more traditional term is just wisdom. So the ability to, to separate the wheat from the chaff, essentially, you know, and to be able to say, OK, look, there's, there seems to be evidence for this. That's a good argument. What's the counter argument? Um, being able to exercise that has never been more important. The good mm -hmm. news is that we actually have access to information. I mean, we wrote our book, The Price of Panic, during the lockdown, and I couldn't even go to a library, but I still had access because the internet and search engines to find this stuff. At the same time, I think social media bombards us with so much information, including a lot of disinformation. And we have to remind ourselves that the media is highly incentivized to terrify us constantly. There just, there is, really isn't a market for, okay, let's be careful, let's weigh the evidence, let's look at both sides, right? There's just not a big market for that. But of course, every, every scary thing that you see, you're tempted to click on. It's just kind of human psychology. And so you gotta really remind yourself, okay, there's an incentive constantly to terrify me. And so I need to discount what I see based on that. It doesn't mean there's never anything scary, but you're constantly reminding yourself of that. And then there really ultimately isn't a substitute for doing careful research, for looking, okay, any argument, you wanna know what's the strongest argument on the other side, any piece of evidence, mm -hmm. what's the best argument against it? Because really good evidence and arguments, they hold up under scrutiny in that way. Whereas ones that don't, they tend to fall apart. And so very often, um, we hear an argument. It sounds good to us. There's a there's a there's a proverb actually in the Old Testament in the Bible that says, you know, basically when you hear one side of an argument, it sounds good to you until you hear the other side. And so if you don't know what the other side even is, you're probably not in a position to be able to evaluate it carefully. And so that's honestly, it's what we want to do in this book is to say, okay, look, we don't think everything the media is telling you is false, uh, but we do think in this case that there was there very much a kind of a media campaign of hysteria that really led to the panic. I mean, we think the story of 2020 is that the, the, the not that important of a story is the nature of this, this virus, because it's in some ways it's not a historic coronavirus. It's comparable uh, in its dangers to maybe the Hong Kong flu of 1968 or something like that. What's historic is this planetary simultaneous panic that has is still enthralled the world. We think that's what historians 50 years ago from now will still be talking about when we talk about 2020. Right. I mean, I saw, gosh, I've, the amount of memes that have come across my desk th this past year is uh, unprecedented. But I saw one the other day and it showed uh, suicide deaths and like yeah. people were yawning. And then it said heart attack deaths and people were yawning. And it said cancer deaths and people mm -hmm. were yawning. And then it said uh, coronavirus cases Yes. You know, with, with with the test that, that we know produces false positives oh, and terrible. everyone was freaking out, you know, in, 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 in terror. And I mean, what what explains the panicked reaction that that we're seeing around the globe? You well, know? I, 
Yeah, it's a complicated series of events. I mean, the first is that there were these predictive computer models in March. Uh, the, the infamous one is the, the so-called Imperial College London model led by a scientist named, or really a modeler, uh, named Neil Ferguson, uh, which predicted, it. basically a computer model is a complex argument in which you simulate certain things based upon the assumptions that you plug in. And so they plugged into this model, uh, this assumption that the, the coronavirus is gonna have a 3.4% infection fatality rate, which made it way more deadly than the Spanish flu. Made all sorts of assumptions about how contagious it was, about what people would do. And then they assumed in the model that lockdowns would help to re reduce this. So those are all assumptions in the model. And that's where we got this number that 2.2 million Americans were going to die if we didn't do a lockdown. It wasn't based on evidence. It was the model itself. But the director general, the World Health Organization, uh, Dr. Tedros, he glommed onto this model. He told the public health officials in the United States. And so when President Trump was advised by his scientific advisors, President Trump said, well, I was told, Trump said this on April 8th, if I didn't shut, we didn't shut down the country, 2.2 million Americans were gonna die. That number was, that came directly from this Imperial College London model. It was not based upon evidence. And as soon as we got data about, real data about the coronavirus, we knew it was flawed. But now the kind of public health machine in the world was already moving. And then you had the media highlighting these particular public health officials, highlighting these computer predictions. I mean, I can tell you when we were working on the book, even as late as April, when anyone in the know knew the computer model was worthless, you could still Google what's the infection fatality rate of COVID-19 and it would just tell you 3.4%. That's how instantaneous this, imagine this, a single predictive computer model maybe half a dozen public health officials, because they had the ear of very important po politicians, had the power to shut down the world. And that's a terrifying thing. And we think one of the lessons of this is that we need to separate public policy decisions and predictive computer models so that you do not rely on a predictive computer model until it's after it's been tested against the evidence. That didn't happen in this case. It was just based on assumptions prior to the evidence. And uh, that's absolutely catastrophic. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but most of the people in the media, I mean by most, I mean like 99% of people in the media simply do not have the intellectual capacity or just the background knowledge to know how to evaluate these claims from computer models. They just think, oh, it's science. And uh, that, that's sort of as far as they go. And it, you know, any of us that have some experience uh, uh, with these computer models. That's, that's what got us worried about this already in March is we thought, okay, this is gonna be a disaster because we're making decisions not based upon real evidence, but based upon speculative modeling. And I'm sure you're aware, but our listeners may not be. The Imperial College of London is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And Bill Gates, uh, for those who haven't seen it, there's, there's a video of him presenting to, I believe it was the CIA, around about 2005 where, um, or I'm actually confusing references, but Bill Gates has publicly said that um, vaccines are the best investment he's ever made and typically produce a 20 to one return. Mm -hmm. That's tough to mimic anywhere else in the market, you know? So you can start yeah. to see, uh, you know, when you, when you follow the money and ask who has a motive, you know, and you start to see the connections, it does, it does sort of shine a light on various possibilities, mm -hmm. right? I'm not making any allegations. Sure. I don't want anything that Bill Gates has, but I do find some of these connections uh, interesting. It, it, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he uh, certainly the Gates Foundation. I mean, Bill Gates was, for, of course, a, for a long time, he was the richest man in the world and a great um, <laughs> entrepreneur and founder of Microsoft. And then he has become the largest philanthropist in the world. He is deeply invested, as you say, in in vaccines and things that at least on the surface look good. And I think in, in his own heart, I think he probably maybe means well. But I think the, the, the reality is he's one of the major donors to the World Health Organization. And so you end up with a few people uh, like this. I mean, the world Health Organization is the public health arm of the uh, United Nations. And a lot of people, when you hear that, you think, well, this is just going to be doctors and people that want to help people. But the public health is itself a kind of political thing. And so if you're at the United Nations, um, the, the United Nations is not a hospital. And so even if it has a division that deals with public health, it's also, in a sense, a kind of political thing. And you, you realize that. And that's why, I mean, sickness and health should not be partisan or political issues, but they, they end up being that. And I think we've seen that this year is that there's really no more powerful way uh, to control a population than with a public health argument, because none, first of all, none of us want to be sick and we don't have to be sick and we don't want to make other people sick. Um, and so I think it's a very, very powerful tool for social control. And I think that's why it, it, it merits uh, maybe more scrutiny than we've been willing to give it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly does seem that in, in until on a mass level, we have adopted some of these mental exercises you described of discernment, you know, yes. a willingness to examine in detail both sides of an argument and then apply critical thinking and our intuition as well to that process. And um, until we can take in information without necessarily having some knee-jerk emotional response, especially a knee-jerk emotional response that takes us down into these uh, lower vibratory states of consciousness, like fear, anger, mm -hmm. frustration. Um, the, the, the people who don't develop those skill sets could risk being, being left behind, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of, and, and for some that may look like death in, in, in the worst case scenario for others, it may just be, um, you know, kind of falling into this, this technocracy where yeah. they have a lot of their freedoms taken away uh, and they're being monitored 24 seven by all of the quote unquote smart devices that we've, we've surrounded ourselves with. Um, what, what would you say is the price of panic? It's really, really steep. I mean, you actually mentioned it a few minutes ago. We focus on not even COVID deaths. We're talking about COVID cases, which, of mm -hmm. course, is hugely problematic because cases used to mean you were sick enough that you needed to get treatment and then you were tested positive. Now, a, a case just is anybody that happens to get a positive test. And when you're dealing with these highly cycled PCR tests, you're massive uh, sort of uh, false positives. And so the case isn't really even the thing you want to care about. But the very fact that, for instance, we've missed tens of thousands of cancer screenings, an early um, estimate that the first three months of the lockdowns probably led to about 85,000 missed cancer screenings just basically in April, May, and June. I mean, think of that. So that's 85,000 people who go into the doctor, they would have, they'd have cancer that would get detected and could get treated, missed just in that first three months uh, of the lockdowns. One estimate or early on thought there'd be 75,000 excess deaths of despair in 2020. So that's deaths from suicide and drug and alcohol overdose, all caused from the lockdowns. Those deaths of despair, aren't those aren't the result of the coronavirus. 
coronavirus. Uh, those are the result of people, you know, being depressed because they locked, lost their jobs because the entire country is locked down or you're a student and you're locked at home. Uh, that is very hard for human beings. We're social creatures. And so to do this, those are just two, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit. Those are the price uh, of panic. We know that it probably costs the economy when we're locked down about a trillion dollars a month. Of course, the dollars aren't the main thing. The, 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 those dollars stand in for people's jobs and healthcare and meals and, and rental, rental payments and all those kinds of things. In fact, another arm of the United Nations, if you look at it globally, the, the UN uh, World Food Program uh, estimated that we could very quickly get to a situation where you have about 300,000 deaths globally per day from the lockdowns, just from the disruption to the global food supply chain. Now, I don't know, because that was again, based on a predictive model. We don't know if that will pan out. But let's say it's 30,000. Let's say they overestimated it by 10 times. Well, 30,000 extra deaths of starvation every single day doesn't take very long before the price of the lockdowns, that is the price of the panic, ends up exceeding all the attributed deaths from the coronavirus itself. That's the very definition of a bad response. If you have a response to a, a danger that kills more people than the danger itself, uh, that was a really, really stupid response. What you want to have is you want to maximize the benefits and reduce the costs. And unfortunately, we argue in the book, if you look at the lockdowns, if you look at most of the responses, uh, these were mostly all pain and no gain, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and paying p a y i n g. When you look at the the, the costs on the the taxpayers of of governments across the world to implement these tests, you know, my friends that have flown have sent videos of just lines and lines and lines of people doing these tests. That you know, in the case of the PCR test, the creator uh, mm -hmm. Carrie Mullis m u l l i s has publicly said should not be used for this. It it, it is not accurate. It will produce Absolutely. false, false positives. And he even went further to say that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci should, it, it knows very little about these tests and a lot yeah. of the things that he's, he's discussing publicly. And, and we've kind of ran into this case where the cure is worse than the disease, which I believe President Trump said, said yeah. early on, um, you know, I'd, I'd heard a very interesting statistic that was um, the leading cause of death in 2020. You know, this year that's been overshadowed by the uh, the coronavirus. Uh, the leading cause of death was abortion. Oh yeah, we lost over over 42 million lives to abortion. And right. when when you realize that 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 in comparison, you know, cancer is around uh, eight million heart mm -hmm. disease, a little bit less. And, and coronavirus, even with the uh, the inflated numbers, you yeah. know, doc, doctors and medical professionals have validated that they've seen death certificates changed. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's there's people that died in car accidents and heart attacks that were labeled coronavirus. So we, we know these numbers are fraudulent. There was still only 1.9 million people that died of, of coronavirus using those statistics yeah. in, in 2020. So we have this case of almost misdirection, mm -hmm. you know, like you see from an illusionist or a magician where so many people are dying from, um, from abortion, cancer, suicide, these deaths of despair, as you mentioned, yep. financial financial ruin, people not going to the hospitals for something because they're uh, scared yes. of, of what could happen. Um, 
No, I mean, I think the key, the key point is that people don't know the baseline. So, of course, it's not like you, everybody walks around knowing, okay, how many people die, say, of heart disease every day, either worldwide or in the United States? Most of us have no idea. We have no idea how many abortions, for instance, which is an unbelievable baseline, of course. Um, and so you don't actually know. Um, what everybody assumes is that every death you hear for coronavirus, you assume is that it's an, a, a death on top of everyone that would otherwise have died. But that's not the case. And we know that because the average age of death for attributed to coronavirus is very close to the expected life, the general life expectancy in the United States. In fact, it's within about a year. And so if you have a, a, a thing that's causing people to die very close to the average life expectancy, that tells you that it's really, a, a, in these cases, a contributing factor to death. It's very much like uh, flu and colds were. And so the reality is that if you look, lots and lots of people, if you survive cancer, if you survive heart disease, you tend to die, um, if it's not an accident, from complications related uh, to pneumonia. So you get the flu, you get the cold, a cold, you get pneumonia, and then you die. That's just that, you know, we, we have a, a limited life expectancy. And so that's what happens. That's primarily what the coronavirus is doing. And so it's basically occupying that same space that the flu is occupying. Now, I think in the first year or two, it's going to be more dangerous than that because we don't have as much uh, exposure and immunity to it. But that's a, that's very much what it's like. And so this idea that we should have responded to it as if it was some, you know, as of the Black Death, as if it was the plague or something, uh, we were bound, I think, to end up with a response that was really, the, as President Trump said almost a year ago, a cure that was worse than the disease. You want to respond to something with the risk that's appropriate. So, I mean, if you have an earache, you don't dig your ear out of your head. That obviously would be an inappropriate response. But we had on this assumption that it was highly infectious, that there's all this asymptomatic spread and that it had a 3.4% infection fatality rate is that we responded in a way that was sort of appropriate to that false assumption. But we also responded in a way that wasn't even known would help. So this idea of population-wide lockdowns, we never, we didn't even have evidence that that would help. That's the irony. You can say, well, maybe the we did too much of it, but it'd be one thing to respond too harshly. It's another thing to respond stupidly. And that's what population-wide lockdowns are. They're kind of a stupid response. A smart response would be isolate the people that you know are infectious, really focus your protection then on the people that are high risk, like elderly people in nursing homes. And then you let the rest of the people live their lives. That's a That'd be a rational quarantine, which is what we always did in the past. But what we did in 2020 is we said, let's try this other thing where we basically lock the entire population down and we just assume ahead of time that it will help. Well, at least you could have said in March, we don't know if it would have worked. Well, we knew by May or June, you can. we did this in the book. You, you compare all the states to each other, you compare all the countries to each other, and then you mark the ones that had a lockdown and when they had the lockdowns, and then you can look and see, okay, is there a signature in the noise? That is a signal in the noise where you see a bend in those curves 10 days out after the lockdowns. Well, that's what would happen if they actually worked. What we discovered is there's absolutely no signal in the noise. In other words, the virus just is completely indifferent to these government lockdowns. So all those costs to the, to the lockdowns, those are, those are literally all just costs. There's no benefits on the other side of the ledger to, to counterbalance that. Absolutely. And guys, if, if you're enjoying this conversation, um, 
support Dr. J.W. Richards by picking up his book, The Price of Panic. It's available on Amazon right now. Um, if Amazon happens to take it down, I'm sure you can just use a simple search engine to, to find uh, a bookstore that does have it. So that's, you know, that's if you like the work that people are doing and the stuff that they're putting out into the world, support them um, by picking it up. So grab The Price of Panic at Amazon. Um, Dr. Richards, one of the issues that I'm seeing show up as a, as a problem is liability protection mm-hmm. with vaccines. We have, um, I believe it was called the vaccine injury act around 1985 that passed that basically like these, these pharmaceutical companies are able to, um, hurt people with vaccines and experience, uh, no recourse. Mm-hmm. where families can't go after them. We have this vaccine court that is is largely um, at least alleged by many people to be corrupt. And even, even so still has uh, paid out billions, I believe in, in excess of $4 billion in damages to, to families and, and uh, who had children injured from vaccines. When we talk about these models that are also being used it seems like there's also liability protection for those, you know, is, is, is Neil Ferguson going to have to answer to this erroneous and inaccurate model that he created? Um, because in, in I, I, the way that I see it until liability protection is removed and accountability is, is reinstilled, um, this is going to be a repeating problem with models and vaccinations. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really complicated issue and I I don't know about vaccines in general. I do know um, it, that let, let's talk about the models. I mean, because in principle, what the, the way you need markets to work for a market to work, um, a company that succeeds in doing something should enjoy benefits, but a company that harms people should also suffer the consequences. That's when you have that scenario, right? It's balanced out and then a market works really well. If a company, a private company has some liability protection that prevents it from ever having to suffer consequences for bad actions, then you're likely to get a that outcome. And so I think that there's probably some, some corruption in the process. I don't know enough about it to really speak strongly on it. I do know that in the case of the now, I think three vaccines, um, the two American ones, the Moderna uh, and the Pfizer vaccine, um, at the moment, the, the sort of the success of these vaccines is mainly press release information. I mean, just by definition, we haven't been able to test these vaccines as we would like to have and as vaccines normally would have. Now, if we're dealing with something like Ebola where people catch a virus, they just drop over dead, then you say, okay, well, the risk is worth it. Even if it, you know, there's like a 10% chance it's gonna kill you. Well, if there's a 30% chance the bug's gonna kill you, maybe it's worth it. We're not dealing with that situation though. And so that's what's sort of perplexing about it. So that somebody that's like a really high risk might say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk of an untested vaccine that might harm me. But if you have very, very little likelihood of, of getting severely sick, let alone dying, um, you know, I don't understand why you would get a vaccine. And so that's that's the kind of thing that people should be able to make those kinds of decisions for themselves rather than being sort of badgered into doing this because it's going to help everyone else. Um, taking a vaccine that's untested when you're at very little risk from the thing you're being vaccinated against, that just that's that's too much. And I 
think that's that's what we're really dealing with. I mean, the truth of the matter is we don't know what the long-term effects of this vaccine are. And so I've told people that have asked me, I said, look, well, I had, first of all, I, I had a COVID-19 a few months ago, and so I wouldn't do it anyway. But even if not, I'm not nearly high risk enough of a category that I would do this unless I was just literally forced to do it. Um, and if I were under 20, I would absolutely not want, <laughs> want to be doing this, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that, that's really the worry. Now, you said something about um, liabilities for these model predictors, they have none. This is the irony that we talk about in The Price of Panic is that um, the, the people that produce these predictive models, they can go wrong again and again. In fact, Neil Ferguson at the Imperial College London has had a 20-year history of creating these computer models that predict huge catastrophic consequences and various pandemics from the bird flu and swine flu and different things that don't pan out. And he never has suffered any consequences for it. And again, it sort of has to do with incentives. And so if you're, if you, let's say you work for the government and you predict that something's going to kill a million people. And so you do something and only a thousand people die. Well, then people will say, oh, good. I'm so glad. Either I'm glad it wasn't as bad as you thought, or they'll say, oh, our response must have saved everyone. Right. And so you don't mm -hmm. get any trouble. On the other hand, if you say, oh, well, this won't kill anybody and then it kills a million people, well, you're going to lose your job. And so they have a very strong incentive uh, for, for overestimating the dangers and underestimating the dangers of a response because they really, they, essentially, they don't suffer the consequences. And so that's why we think the public has to apply more critical scrutiny to any claim that's based on an untested computer model, especially if it's being used by government public health officials, because you already know that they have a very strong incentive uh, to basically to panic and to over predict the deadliness of something. And so you have to sort of discount it when you're, you're thinking, okay, how much credence should I give to this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're seeing in many in, in many of the different industries, the the, the medical industrial complex, um, the I mean, it, it's really healthcare, education, everything. But um, we're seeing these patterns kind of emerge where there's potentially a great deal of corruption at the top. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm curious what. What safeguards or checks and balances exist, you know, in our judicial system? Let's let's say the United States first, because I, I, I'm sure you're not an expert in mm -hmm. you're not a lawyer, right? Neither yeah, am I. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, that's it's important to say that. But just hypothetically, like what safeguards exist? Is there any bottom up checks and balances where the people that know you know, some of this corruption is taking place? Um, if, if, if the the disciplinary actions and corrective measures are not taken from the top? Perhaps, mm -hmm. perhaps because of corruption. Yeah. Um, what can we do? Is there anything? Are lawyers that that you know see what's happening and want to make the world a better place? What options may may exist? Well, I honestly think that the irony here, I get really frustrated with what happens <clears throat> on a lot of things when it comes to American courts, uh, but the courts have been mostly good. Like if a governor has locked down a state and say a church or a private business uh, takes the state to court, the, 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 the courts almost always side in favor of the plaintiff. That is against the government overreach. And so the reality is that uh, state governors for, in general have about a 30 day emergency action window. So basically if you have a tsunami and the government does you know, governor doesn't have time to call an assembly. Um, they have these emergency powers, but they're very limited in their time. And so we're out, you know, what are we about nine months out now? And so what's happened, I, I live in Washington, DC, and I can tell you in the District of Columbia, uh, it's a, the mayor that's in charge of this, and she was locking everything down. And the problem wasn't that people were, were suing her, and, you know, she was getting to do what she was wanting to do. It's that 
people and organizations were themselves scared and not willing to do it and not willing to actually take them to court. And so in many cases, I think what we needed to do is be as a population less compliant. I'm not saying we should be, be violent. I am saying that as long as we are willing to comply, as long as a large percentage of us think, well, this is what it's going to have to happen and we're going to all just comply with it. It's going to happen. And I honestly think that's the only kind of bottom-up control we have. I mean, if an entire town just decides, okay, this is ridiculous. We're not going to just keep our businesses closed. We'll take all necessary precautions. We're not going to keep doing this. There wouldn't really be any way to enforce a lockdown. There really is no way to do that. It's only because 99% of the population is complying with these things that they're actually happening. And so, you know, I worry that this will continue until a kind of critical mass of the population just decides, okay, peacefully, uh, nonviolently, we're just we're not going to do this anymore. And that's why, in some ways, they, they have to. They're committed to keeping us terrified because if we're terrified, we're going to comply. If we actually think the lockdowns and the the handkerchiefs over our face at the gym are really making a difference, right? Then we're going to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. This episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show is brought to you by Veritas Farms and their full line of CBD products, CBD standing for cannabidiol. Now, we are real excited about this partnership because Veritas means truth in Latin, and we are big believers in bringing you guys the truth, not just through this podcast, but by making sure that any products that we share or that we bring on as sponsors are products that we personally use, believe in, and endorse ourselves. And that is the case with Veritas Farms and their full line of CBD products. The reason that they're so great, they are full spectrum hemp products, meaning that they have all of the beneficial phytonutrients that you get in a quality CBD product. 99% of the CBD products on the market are CBD isolate, and they're just being resold, meaning they're coming from a few small manufacturers. They've only got one tiny part of all of the important phytonutrients that you need to get the benefits you want from a CBD product, and they're just a bunch of different companies reselling them. Veritas Farms is vertically integrated, meaning they own the farm. They ensure that there are no pesticides being added. It's organic, and then they control the entire process from harvesting to extraction until that product ends up at your door. That's what I love it. It's kind of like farm to table, but for CBD. And the benefits that I've noticed, my sleep is better. I feel like I get a deeper, more restful night's sleep. I'm less stressed. I never have periods of anxiety. I feel calm and focused throughout the day. And it even decreases in inflammation when I have flights or other things where inflammation is an inevitable part of life. You take a little extra CBD and it can be very helpful for stress, anxiety, sleep, and that inflammation. So if you guys want to check it out, we've arranged a 15% discount for you guys. To get that, you can go to theveritasfarms.com forward slash biohacks. I'll spell it out. T-H-E-V-E-R-I-T-A-S-F-A-R-M-S.com forward slash B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S to save 15%. Check out the Veritas Farms CBD. You guys are going to absolutely love it. I think we would benefit from more people stepping up and saying, no, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, this is tyranny. It's, it's not based on science. And additionally, like we, we do need to call for more accountability and, you know, be willing to, um, to, to kind of go against at least the, 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 the herd that is just yeah. fearful and, and compliant. Right. Um, you mentioned that you had had, coronavirus and therefore mm-hmm. would not be getting the vaccine. Perhaps you could explain your logic there a little bit, because I think a lot of our listeners it may have also had it themselves um, and would be interested in your reasoning there. 
Absolutely. And so, um, you know, on the assumption that this is like other coronaviruses and there are, of course, discussions of different strains, uh, but I don't think that these things mutate. They just don't. They don't mutate as quickly as the flu. So there's no reason to assume you're going to get a new strain every single year. Uh, if you genuinely had, so it wasn't a false positive, you genuinely are infected with, with uh, SARS-CoV-2 as the name of the virus itself, but we'll just call it the coronavirus, uh, then you're almost certainly mostly immune to it. Now, it might be that you could get some kind of low level in, of infection but it's very likely uh, that you have various forms of immunity, including specific antibodies against the coronavirus. And so it really doesn't make any sense uh, that you'd have to get a vaccine. In fact, we're told that even these vaccines um, that weirdly uh, don't actually confer really good immunity. Apparently what they're supposed to do is just reduce the, the severity of symptoms, uh, which is ironic. So it means that actually getting it is kind of the best way to, to build up an immunity to the bug. And so, you know, there's debate about how long the immunity lasts and we don't know. I, I think it almost certainly will last for years. In fact, I actually think, I can't prove this, but I think a lot of people in East Asia actually already had some pre-existing immunity. It's very hard to explain why have so few Japanese and South Koreans and Taiwanese, why have so few of them died from this? And we think, well, that probably the best explanation is that they had already been exposed to some coronaviruses that were similar to this. My co-author, William Briggs, for The Price of Panic, he got locked, he got trapped in Taiwan for the entire duration of the time we were writing the book. He was over there for business and couldn't get back to the U.S. Well, Taiwan didn't have a lockdown. They are an island country, but they didn't, they had very few deaths. They didn't have problems with it. And we think, okay, and there was, this is poo-pooed initially, but we really think there were probably some pre-existing population immunity to it, not this particular coronavirus, but one that was similar enough. It's Otherwise, it's very hard to explain why you get so many deaths in places like the UK, but so few deaths in places like Vietnam. And so we suspect there was some of that. So this kind of pre-existing uh, immunity. And then, of course, if you've had it yourself with this coronavirus, you're going to have the antibodies for some amount of time that are going to keep you uh, from, from really getting sick from it. And so that's why I'm, I'm not worried about it. I mean, I feel like in, in some ways I'm it, it, it was a relief. I mean, I got it after the book came out. It was just a couple of months ago around Thanksgiving. And I thought, okay, well, good. Now I've seen it from the first person perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, um, when you look at the way that, let's say the, the quote unquote masses are responding mm -hmm. to what's, what's been going on with, with C-19 and you contrast that with the way that you've been handling it, you know, what are you doing differently? And, and you could get as granular as you want from masks to mm -hmm. uh, travel to anything. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about what you're doing yeah. different than the masses. Well, I'm certainly, I can tell you that um, the, the people are different psychologically. And I could say even a difference between my wife and me, for instance. So we get on a plane and um, I can easily say, look, this is way safer than driving. You know, I know what the statistics are and I'm comforted by that. And so I can sleep through turbulence. That kind of statistical calculation doesn't provide her with as much sort of psychological relief. And so I do think it sort of helps if the probabilities help you, right? If you can say, okay, look, I'm going to adjust my emotional state to the likelihood that this is going to happen. 
then you're going to benefit. Now, the problem is some people are just dispositionally different. But if you're the type that can say, if I could persuade you that you have only a one in a million chance of dying from something, will you feel more relaxed? Well, then that's good news because you can actually just go to CDC and you can run the numbers. All it takes is a little arithmetic and you'll discover that the coronavirus is just simply not nearly as dangerous as you probably have been led to believe by CNN. So there was a poll in, in July, a COVID tracking opinion poll uh, that asked Americans how dead, how many, what percentage of the population, so it was what percentage of the population had died so far of the coronavirus. So this was in July. The average guess was 9%. So the average American thought 9% of the population had died of the coronavirus. So that would have been utterly catastrophic. I mean, absolutely mm -hmm. catastrophic. That'd be like a world war. Mm -hmm. Of course, the number at the time. What is that, like 30 million people? Oh, gosh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. If you're, if you're like talking just the people. U.S. Yeah, just the U.S. It'd be 30 million. Yeah, 30 million people in about a three-month period, too. Right. It, and, so, and, and still less than abortion. No, it's still less than abortion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. You know, exactly. And so but the actual number was 0.06%. And so that means that people thought that the, the bug was 150 times more deadly than it actually is. And that's I'm, we're using that's CDC numbers. They're not pulling this out of, you know, some random website. And so we've been led to believe that it's much, much more deadly. And so for me, it was just allowing the data to speak and then kind of adjusting myself emotionally. And so I'm still careful during flu season. I don't like to catch the flu, you know, if huh. people are, I stay, don't get around people that have the flu. And so in the same, the same way, you know, if somebody has coronavirus, um, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't be hanging around them, you know, and, mm -hmm. and be careful. And so, but it would be adjust appropriately. I, I said, okay, let's say this is maybe four times worse than the flu. Then my response for Ashley should be about four four times more cautious than I would, you know, during the flu, flu season. Uh, and that would be appropriate to the evidence. And so it's really just a matter of, um, it's the, the traditional virtue of prudence, which is to see the world as it is and to adjust your actions accordingly. So you want to know what's, what's the reality like, and then you adjust your behavior to reality. And that's really, it's not that much more complicated than this. And so it's not like, oh, I, you know, let's go have a COVID party and get sick. I mean, that's silly. Um, on the other hand, I'm not going to get all that much more worked about, up about it than I would for the flu, given my particular situation in life. Mm hmm. You do raise a good question. I mean, how ridiculous is it to have a COVID party? We know that that they did uh, chicken pox parties yeah. for a while, just basically in order to confer that herd immunity and that natural immunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you when you look at some of what they're saying now, where I mean, there's a lot of people that believe that this this vaccine is it's, it shouldn't even be called a vaccine. That's almost a misnomer yeah. because it's not uh, it's not introduce the pathogen and then, and then there's lifelong immunity. It's like, uh, you're going to need to get this a lot. And, yep. you know, they're telling you all sorts of justifications from mutation to whatever other, other nonsense is out there, but it's not a vaccine. It doesn't function like a vaccine That's and right. we probably shouldn't be calling it a vaccine. You're right. I mean, that is in some ways, uh, that's kind of part of the PR campaign. I mean, we've never had an mRNA uh, drug. We're going to call it a vaccine, but there's never been one that has been approved by the FDA. That includes this. So both mm. the Moderna and the Pfizer drugs got a free pass. So, they, so basically, we'd never gotten an approved vaccine uh, for a coronavirus, in fact. Like in in 60, 60 plus years yeah. of coronaviruses existing. Exactly. And, and us dealing with them. Uh, we've never, never done this. And so that tells you that there's something really hard about doing that. And in this case, this is a drug that let's just assume the press release 
releases are right, that if it doesn't harm you, will we'll somehow reduce your symptoms. Well, that's different. The purpose of a vaccine generally is basically to speed up herd immunity. So we do the flu vaccine, even though it doesn't make everyone immune, if millions of people get it, the idea is that we reach herd immunity in the population quicker than we would otherwise. Same thing with the polio vaccine, right? Um, it, well, it, but if it's not doing that, if they're telling us you still need to wear a mask and you can still catch it, it as you said, it's not really a vaccine. It's like a maybe a prophylactic or something like that at best. And so that's what's so frustrating about this when you study it, because, you know, the stuff that we were saying that, you know, we started out being conspiracy theorists by saying, okay, this is, doesn't look like it's supposed to be. Then you're controversial. Then, you know, suddenly CNN is saying what you said six months ago as if it's obvious. I mean, that's what we're doing now. We've got Mario Cuomo um, and the mayor of Chicago saying, oh, we can't keep locking down businesses. <laughs> well, thank you. We were saying that nine months ago. Mm-hmm. Cost is too great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like put on your, your law of attraction hat, Mm -hmm. right? If, if, if anything were possible, um, what, you know, imagine it's, it's 12 months from today, what needs to have happened, uh, for us to, to kind of step outside of this mess? Mm. I think really only one thing needs to happen is that a critical mass of the population needs to basically understand what we're talking about here to really be able to assess this properly so that there isn't, because right now the the media is getting their fix, right? They're incentivized to terrify us. But if more and more of us just say, look, give, give me a break here, give us some real information, give us some real news, the media itself will be less incentivized. Um, I honestly think that's the, in some ways, if I could pick one thing, it would just be have rather than 50% of the population have say 80% or 90% of the population realize this. And then I think actually it ultimately goes away. So that, you know, just realizing, okay, don't tell me about cases. Tell me about deaths. Tell me about the details of the deaths. Just this kind of really basic increase in understanding and discernment on the part of the population. I think that's that's all that would really be needed because then I think the other institutions would be incentivized to do something else. A mayor that is gonna have just an entire population of her city not comply is not gonna just keep doing that, right? She's not gonna just keep pushing it. But as long as you have the teachers telling you you're doing the right thing and you have all the public health officials and you have 60% of your population thinking you're doing the right thing, uh, then you're going to get away with it. But in general, you live in a city or you live in a state, politicians are elected democratically. And if most of the population says this doesn't make any or so, sense. Or so, the, or, or so we're led to believe. <laughs> that's, notice, <laughs> notice I said at the state, yeah, the local and the state level. I suspend judgment on the national level, right? I thought, uh, I thought this was a democratic country too, that's in a democratic right. process. And now I'm like, okay, it's oligarchs. And, uh, yeah, that's we're, right. We're getting, yeah. we're getting whatever puppets they want. <laughs> and so we've got, at least I think the mayor is at, at least my hamlet here is is democratically elected and they respond to the incentives. Let's put it that way. So if a huge segment of the population uh, gets fed up, I think that they they end up doing the right thing. But at the moment, if most of us are terrified, uh, then they're not going to suffer the consequences for bad policies. Mm-hmm. Be not afraid. Be, yes, not, be afraid, not afraid, people. It's it, this this is a problem that really is biblical in yeah. in, in its etiology, meaning that like, if we have a morality issue, that morality issue is that people have become hyper materialistic and mm-hmm. started valuing uh, and prioritizing the law of man over the laws of God and natural law. Yeah. And and that's what's got us here. And when when you're in that headspace of hyper materialism and and, um, you know, 
fearing man rather than God, it, 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 it can lead you to a pretty dangerous place if you don't get off that track and kind of yep. start realigning your, your moral and, and ethical foundations. I totally agree. I think that's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, it's it's strange because none of us would have believed this in 2019 that we'd be told, close your business, don't go to church, don't go to school, and you need to do it for your fellow human beings, and we would all just do it. That would have all sounded totally strange and like the craziest conspiracy theory you've ever heard, and yet it actually happened. And now we treat it as if it's the new normal. That's why we say at the end of the book, uh, we wrote the book against the brave new normal, because our fear is that if we show as a population how easily we will comply with something, as long as it's couched in terms of public health, in terms of our own immortality or mortality or the mortality of our neighbors, that we will easily comply. People are watching. I mean, people that would like to control us are watching that and they will learn the lesson and they'll know, okay, every future crisis will be framed in terms of public health. Um, And so we're gonna have to, I think, amp up our capacity to discern when that's happening and to be able to say, okay, look, this is a legitimate thing or they're, they're, they're using this crisis essentially to do things that they ought not to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's also critical for us to recognize the very real possibility that artificial intelligence is being used to constantly assess the uh, collective consciousness. Where is it at and what content could steer it in a certain direction, right? And this is coming through our phones and our televisions. And, um, you know, until we really do apply that discernment and become emotionally less attached to things, mm-hmm. especially things that come through our devices, Definitely. through these, through these, you know, black screens, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're po- positioning ourselves to be controlled and allowing ourselves yeah. to be controlled. That's right. And, I, and we think that it's not, it's not just the kind of traditional media, because of course, in 2009, we had a, uh, a pandemic with the swine flu and nothing like this happened. We even had social media, but smartphones were only about two years old. But what we did not have is direct access like we do now. First of all, social media has utterly penetrated culture in a way that it hadn't in 2009. And then everyone has a smartphone in which you can essentially get high definition video in real time. So an old man can fall over and die on a street in China and it's uploaded to Instagram and it's all over the world in a matter of hours. And everybody thinks they're seeing what the coronavirus does. That's a kind of new technological reality. And we have not adapted ourselves either individually as psychology, in terms of our psychology or socially, uh, to be able to deal with this type of, of, of information. And as you say, especially when it's being highly optimized uh, with artificial intelligence algorithms, so that of course, you know, if we click on something, that's <laughs> it's gonna be optimized and we're gonna get more of it. We have to become much more discerning consumers of, of social media and of, of this technology if I think we're gonna honestly survive long-term. I, I completely agree. And it's it's also critical to understand things like, I, I think anyone listening with, with a good heart and a good moral compass would agree that black lives matter. Oh, yeah. And, and that all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know how somehow that became a disrespectful statement, but um, when, when you dig a little bit deeper and you start to realize, okay, BLM is, is a Marxist organization. It literally has Marxist founders. And we're seeing this push with censorship and, yeah. and, and a lot of what looks like there's a push towards socialism or communism right now. If you don't recognize, okay, BLM is, is a Marxist organization and there's an, 
tremendous amount of evidence that what happened with George Floyd was a false flag event, meaning it was something that was orchestrated in order to incite a race war and kind of justify a lot of the things that took place after that. And, and that may be a surprise to, to some people here. It's not a conspiracy theory. Um, there's there's plenty of people who have posed very uh, compelling arguments that 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 is what went down. I think it's critical that we recognize the weaponization of words. You know, this term conspiracy theory that that came out um it, it was released by the cia and it was around I've when heard, i've heard this i i've not researched this but it's i find it it's somewhat plausible i mean the reality is that for any nefarious thing that's happening think if you're really smart right if you're involved in a genuine conspiracy right behind the scenes mm -hmm. and you're afraid that the word's going to get out about it right like let's say you're let's say you've got some uh, honeypot deal in which you're getting compromising video, right? With people doing illegal things and they're very influential and you're afraid the word's gonna get out about your actual conspiracy. The best way to inoculate yourself against it is to come have somebody postulate some really more outlandish version of it, right? And then everybody talks about that. And then it's easy to debunk the outlandish version. And so then you don't have to worry so much about your own, your actual conspiracy being, uh, you know, being exposed. I think that's always the kind of dilemma is that I think that we get defanged either by being completely undiscerning, right? On the one hand, in which we just don't know what's actually happening, or we fall for the most outlandish version of something, which is so easily debunked that we don't we don't get ourselves in the strongest position. I've always said the real discernment is is being able to separate the genuine conspiracies from the you know from the from the decoys you know mm -hmm. that sort of find mm -hmm. their way out there. Totally, that, yeah. It's that, that it's that process of of creating a false binary. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And 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 especially if if the binary that's closest to truth is, as you said, made to look ridiculous. Yeah. It, 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 under the um, purpose of discrediting anyone, you know, right. sharing it, right? So some sometimes the most powerful thing we could do is recognize, okay, the most dangerous number in in, in the world is two, mm -hmm. and it's really only by awakening to our oneness and saying, okay, you don't have to choose left or right, you don't have to choose red or blue, you know, we we there are there are beautiful and necessary elements to both. Right. That um, and and the application of, of which is is chosen depends on the situation. Yeah. Um, one of you know, there's been so many people in, in our community over these past uh, nine, 10 months that have you know experienced some of those less beneficial emotions, you know, fear, mm -hmm. anger, frustration. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I'll share that's helped a lot of people is one of my favorite songs. It's by John Prine and it's called Spanish Pipe Dream. Mm -hmm. And the chorus of of the song is um, blow up your TV. Throw away your paper, move to the country, get you a farm. And it's it's fun, but at the yeah. same time, also brilliant. Yeah. You know, where where John Prine saw this decades ago, yeah. how when we allow propaganda in the form of of news or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever form it's coming in to dictate our emotional and energetic state, um, we're, we're, we're putting our future at risk. And yeah. by having, you know, a little bit more, uh, by, by having a, by standing guard mm -hmm. to our mind and having a little bit more autonomy over our food supply chains and, yeah. you know, some of the, 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 the things that we require, it positions us to maintain our freedoms and sovereignty over our bodies. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in some ways, um, I, I mean, I'm thankful that we no longer live in the, this age in which we basically had three information sources, maybe one local paper and three information <laughs> sources over TV. It's great to have more because it's actually possible. Uh, it, it, it's possible to ferret out more of the truth, I think, now that it would have been previously. On the other hand, the capacity for uh, multimedia to indoctrinate and propagandize and distract us has never been more powerful. I mean, a, a grainy black and white TV just did not have anything like the power of social media over a smartphone that you carry on your body. And it's going to be, it's only going to get more powerful. And so I honestly think, I mean, there's something I honestly think that, you know, for all, any of us listening, uh, say in 2021 that you're going to become a more discerning uh, consumer of media and social media and technology. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to go live in a cave, you know, and abandon everything. I mean, here we are doing a podcast. On the other hand, you need to be discerning in your use of I'm, this. I'm, need... I'm recording from a cave, though. No, you are in a cave. Okay, good. I'm not in a cave. I'm just in a living room here in the middle, inside the beltway in Washington, D.C. Nice. Yeah, you know, and so, but that's the thing is that we just tend to, what's happened is that this, all these technologies just happened immediately. It went from not existing to every single one of us absorbing it and not really thinking about it. And we, we need to be discerning consumers of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And this, this may piggyback on, on some of what you just shared, but what lessons do we need to learn to, to avoid a repeat of what just happened? There's several things. I mean, the first is that we should absolutely not use predictive computer modeling to guide decision-making and public policy decision-making unless it's already been tested over and over against the evidence. And then, it, so it's tested against the evidence, it can be reliable. Just We should just ignore those predictive models for purposes of decision-making. We should always insist on a careful uh, balancing of both the costs and benefits. We should focus on responses in public health uh, crises to known methods that actually help, like genuine quarantines of the sick and not untested ideas like general lockdowns. And we should be much, much more discerning about the appeal of public health uh, officials uh, to do these things. So look, if, if something in, in, in the abstract, the idea that you know people can just tell you, you have to close down your business, can't go to church, can't go to school, can't go outside, right? No, we would all in the abstract recognize those are incredible violations of basic human rights. Then just saying, well, you, now you have to do it for public health reasons, that by itself shouldn't justify it. In fact, you say, okay, fine. I wanna know what the argument is though. Just because it's a public health argument, does it suddenly make all those things okay? And in fact, if anything, the public health argument is probably gonna be one that's always used because everybody now knows it's the most effective way of doing this. That would never have worked if you'd just been told, okay, we have to you have to close all your private businesses. People would not have done that willingly for lots of other reasons, but for the most part, people did it willingly not because, because they were told it's not for your own good, it's for the good of others. And so we have to become much, much more uh, discerning and honestly more skeptical, I think, about this in the future, because I'm telling you, the public health appeals will be the tool of choice for every new uh, attempt to basically increase social control over private businesses, individuals, and families. I guarantee you that's what we're going to get in the coming years if we let it. Is there a call to action for lawyers, attorneys, light warriors for 
I'm not calling out anyone individually. I'm just giving examples. You know, we've, we've talked about Neil Ferguson, who has an illustrious mm-hmm. history of, of false predictive models. We know about uh, Deborah Burks and, and Robert Redfield of, of the CDC, mm-hmm. um, yep. of, of, you know, we've mentioned Bill Gates, of course, and Dr. Anthony Fauci and, and Tedros uh, Gabricius. These, these are people that mm-hmm. many consider to be criminals. Is there a call to action here for attorneys and lawyers and light warriors to hold our public officials and, and um, mayors uh, uh, mm-hmm. accountable. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what's been missing so far. So what should have happened is that the moment businesses were forced to close, uh, there should have been uh, joint lawsuits against cities and states for this. The minute mm-hmm. churches were told, okay, like in Washington, D.C., churches, no matter how big a church or a synagogue is, uh, it's told, you know, a, the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception is this giant Catholic church in Washington, D.C., uh, seats 6,000 people uh, in the upper church, and the city will only allow 50 people into this building at once. So they just decided this random number, 50. Mm-hmm. Now, why the Archdiocese of Washington didn't sue the mayor instantly is beyond me. It took not, about nine months before they did this. If businesses and private organizations and charities and religious organizations were quicker, honestly, to take these public officials to court, a lot of this would already have been broken down. That's what people don't realize. The laws were already in place to deal with this. It's just that we've been terrified. I don't know that there's going to be um, the only way actually to get to the World Health Organization. I'm not going to do it legally. It would be defunding. Um, mm-hmm. I can say when President Trump was president, we had decided we, we were the num- number one funders of the World Health Organization that we we're going to quit funding it. That's basically how you get to some of these organizations. It's, it's by way of funding. There's not really any way, I don't think, to deal with them uh, uh, politically per se or legally. But certainly with local officials, with mayors and governors, uh, you can take them to court. And I think we need to be quicker to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and and Trump did defund the World Health Organization. I think we're all kind of waiting to see what's what's going to unfold here. And I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, before we jump off and land this plane, I'm curious about uh, what's been going on in D.C. But um, just to kind of close out this point with, you know, part of the the problem that churches got themselves into was by by organizing as a 501c3 and when churches do that that um exposes them to a lot of of federal legislation and oversight that can interfere with their autonomy and their ability Mm -hmm. to you know practice, um, you know, freely, freely assemble and practice religion. And I think we need to be aware of that. Um, and there, we're going to see in the coming months and years, more and more churches that say, all right, we're not going the 501 C three route because in some ways that's a trap. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see underground churches and underground places of worship starting to rise up that, um, that make sure they are established from the very onset. Um, to to maintain their freedom and you know our constitutional rights and the the things that our forefathers fought so hard to to provide for us well, there's certainly, I mean, there's always these kinds of trade-offs. And you're right. If you're 501c3, that's a specific tax designation. And so at the moment, either you're 501c3 uh, or you're for-profit, effectively. Um, and that has its own sort of entanglements. And so you're right. This is not the kind of uh, the, the limited government ideal of the founders by any means. I, I think you're right. I think that churches and religious organizations that are at least not entangled in the sense that they're getting large amounts of government grants, uh, still have a lot of autonomy. On the other hand, if you're getting large government grants, like Catholic Charities, for instance, well, then all of a sudden, you've got a lot more incentive to sort of comply because, you 
know, you basically your pipeline could get cut off. And I do think, honestly, I think that things are going to get hostile enough that you're right. It may be that you, we end up with more underground churches dealing with this, which is a, on, in one sense, a regrettable thing because it's, it, you're more marginalized. But on the other hand, yeah, you're right. You do have a, in a sense, more, more autonomy. I do think that there's some weird things coming. I, I would hate to, I'm not a prophet. I have no idea exactly what, but I do think that uh, 2020 was a sort of foretaste uh, of more things to come. And I, I think at the very least as individual citizens, we need to, to learn some lessons so that, so that we don't fall for the same arguments uh, the second time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have a question. There's so many businesses that uh, have incurred massive financial losses in both revenue and profit. And then when, when you look at the businesses, um, the businesses that have been additionally, uh, additionally impacted by online censorship, you know, mm-hmm. let's say, let's say businesses that, that earn some of their money through social media, like Facebook right. and Instagram and YouTube and, and, and have been censored on those platforms. Is there a case? And I know you're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. I'm, we're just kind of spitballing here and having a, having a conversation. Um, are, are, is there a case for tortious damages, you know, loss of loss of revenue and profit, uh, inability to fulfill on contractual agreements because of these, um, because of these lockdowns, you know, people being forced to shut down their businesses and businesses that have lost revenue because of censorship? Well, honestly, I do think, I think at least there's a prima facie case for some businesses who were forced to lock down, especially if they can show uh, that there was actually no medical need for it. And so I think in the case of restaurants, for instance, that there's really good data. So in New York, for instance, if you live in New York City, my friend William Briggs, a co-author on the book, The Price of Panic, he just walked around the streets yesterday and took a bunch of pictures of basically these makeshift tents and huts that restaurants have been forced to build outside because people have to eat outside. They can't eat inside. But of course, it's cold in New York. Who wants to sit outside, right, and have dinner? And so they built these kind of shanties, essentially, which have zero ventilation or for people to sit in when they could be inside where it's well ventilated. There is no scientific or medical justification for this, and yet it's been devastating to businesses. And so I think somebody needs to press that. That hasn't quite happened yet. What's happened is that uh, religious organizations in some states and municipalities have, have pushed and have gotten relief. Businesses has, have not yet done that. And I think that that absolutely is going to have to happen. Um, with respect to the censorship, I think that's still to come. I do think that the, the large social media giants, the platforms, they are public companies, private companies, but they benefit from a particular regulatory uh, regime under Section 230 of the um, uh, Communications and Decency Act, in which they are given uh, the freedom uh, to be neutral platforms, right? So they're like AT&T, so they're not responsible for what's on their platform, but only as long as they're neutral platforms. So if they cease to be neutral platforms and start functioning as, as a publisher, I would argue they shouldn't get that regulatory protection. They should have to decide, are you going to be a publisher or are you going to be a neutral platform? And if you're going to be a neutral platform, you need to show it as a, and, and not be basically censoring, uh, you know, uh, on behalf of your preferred candidate or your preferred ideology. And so I think, you know, all of these things, I think the, the one the one good thing about 2020 is I think there are millions of more Americans that are actually aware of the power of these things. They're aware of how easily media and social media can control the entire population and in some ways kind of transform society overnight. And so I think that awareness is good, but I think it's going to be have, have to be channeled into something discerning and productive uh, in order for us to, to learn the proper lessons as opposed to, you know, sort of going off half cocked and then uh, ending, end up not being effective. 
I agree. I'm seeing a lot of videos and and images and like last kind of two questions as we as we bring this home. I'm enjoying our conversation. And so thank you for sharing. And guys, if you're enjoying our, our conversation, you know, please share this episode with friends, family, coworkers, encourage them to give it, you know, 15, 20 minutes and, and decide for themselves and, and also support Dr. J. Richard's book, The Price of Panic, by picking up a copy on Amazon or, or wherever you 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 buy your books. Um I'm seeing videos and, and pictures of 20, 30,000 troops in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. Um, streets are locked down. I'm yep. curious, as someone that lives there, what what are you seeing? Um, what do you anticipate is going to take place in, in the coming days? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, how do you think this is going to play out? It's totally bizarre. Um, and so I live, we live way inside the Beltway. We used to live in the district. We live just outside the district, but inside the Beltway, which is the 495, the highway that goes around greater Washington, D.C., within the center part of D.C., so where the mall and the Capitol and the White House are, there are about 25,000 National Guards, uh, which includes regular infantry, a striker brigade. So these are big trucks with 50 caliber machine guns on them. They're apparently airplanes and even sort of surface to air missiles over on the side. I haven't seen any of those. But the National Guard, so you have that, you have a chain link fence, you have razor wire around the Capitol, you have concrete barricades uh, all around the place. And then now if you're out in that sort of outer parts of Washington, D.C., you will not see military, but you do see Lockdown. So, for instance, I was driving down 395 South yesterday, and the major exit on Main Avenue is four lanes wide to get get off in D.C. was blocked by two snow trucks, just basically blocking the highway. And so um, and apparently tomorrow. So the day after inauguration, they're going to close all but one narrow bridge from Virginia, which is basically if you don't have to be in D.C., you're not going to want to be in D.C. It's very strange because there's you know, if you live there, you have to get around and they're checking people's papers. I've heard from a couple of people that it, it, while it looks creepy, it's not quite as creepy if you're there because these are National Guardsmen are these are just people, ordinary people that are part-time National Guard, right? They get called up. And apparently a lot of them don't even have magazines in their guns. And so I do think a lot of this is more security theater rather than anything. It's just kind of a, this show of force. But it really is. I mean, in some ways, it's historic that we should have what is in effect a lockdown? I mean, 25, that's just, it's like a couple of army divisions uh, worth of troops right in Washington, D.C., plus all the local police and the Capitol Police and things like this. Nobody is coming into D.C., I can tell you. There are not going to be any protesters here. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's going to be the most dismal and most depressing inauguration ever. Um, and so it really, really is just absolutely bizarre. Um, but yeah, if you're planning to come to DC, I would I would discourage anyone listening <laughs> from doing that. There's absolutely yeah, there's nothing to see. Yeah, and I saw that um, within the past few days, it seemed like like President Trump released uh, evidence that the Biden administration uh, accepted money for um, a, a deal that they made with Ukraine, essentially mm-hmm. using their their political positions yep. um, and they accepted bribery in order to pass legislation. And it's, it's kind of it's kind of interesting in that if there is a transition taking place, it seems like Trump's done a decent job of kind of cutting off the the, the nuts of the Biden administration with some of these moves. Well, we'll see. Yeah, the, the Ukraine stuff and the Russiagate stuff, there have been uh, declassifications there. It's still coming out. It's going to take months for us to research it. Uh, there's supposed to be 100 uh, pardons and commutations of sentences here in the next 72 hours or so. So I think it could be very interesting. I honestly think 
I mean, the president, this is my own opinion, has suffered at the hands of the so-called deep state, the administrative permanent state. Um, and one of the best things he could do is I think some, some strategic declassifications and, and pardons that uh, would actually kind of expose that. I think a lot of people see that and honestly think he'd win a lot of friends, not just on the right, but on the left mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, to sort of challenge, I think, the security apparatus that's been built up and that he himself has unfortunately had to deal with. I mean, he was the ultimate outsider um, and, and, and you see that. So it's a really weird moment in which we live. I, it's hard to believe that this is like major historic events happening all one on top of the other, unfortunately. It's, it, it's a very exciting time to be alive. I mean, my, my dad, I, I grew up with my dad reading Tom Clancy novels <laughs> and I, I was like, dad, we're like living in the best Tom Clancy oh, yeah. novel that's never been written right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and and I'm sure some of it's theater and some of it's real and we'll kind of, yeah. you know, that'll all come out, you know, shake it, sort itself out as we, as, as we kind of keep taking steps forward. Last question. Um, what do you kind of predict for the future? You know, we have, we have a, a, a huge portion of the population that has said they won't get this, this drug, you know, mm -hmm. that is being called the vaccine no matter what. And then yeah. we also see a situation where a lot of these industries um, may very well be owned and controlled by the central banks and mm -hmm. insurance companies, you know, the same, the same oligarchs that likely uh, are running many, if not most of the world's governments. Do you see uh, as secondary markets, new airline industries that don't require vaccinations and, and, and businesses kind of emerging? What do you see for the future and what you predict? I hope so. I mean, I, I do predict, I think your diagnosis of a, an emerging oligarchy is actually exactly right. I mean, I've written a lot of books on the dangers of socialism and communism in the 20th century, but this kind of state socialism where the government literally owns everything, it's really a dysfunctional system. And you own, you own nothing and will like it. Yeah, and you will love it. And it just destroys the economy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. May I have another? Yeah, exactly. But this kind of cronyism, this oligarchy in which you have these large corporate entities that are sort of controlled by the state and then the state, which is sort of controlled by these large corporate entities, kind of fusing. So there's this kind of machine of social control. I think that's actually the, the primary danger here at the beginning of the 21st century is that kind of cronyist oligarchy, corporatism, you could call it sort of technically. I think that's the real danger. I think that's what we're seeing with social media suppression. Um, and so I think that's the thing that we need to learn how to deal with. I think secondary markets would be a really nice, yeah, maybe Gab takes off and challenges Twitter. But as you can see, uh, you know, as in any kind of cronyist system, the big Actors want to do everything they can to squelch small upstart competitors. And mm -hmm. that's, I think, what we're seeing here. And as you say, or you just know, or just buy them out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, buy them out. If they're if they've got a good technology, you buy them, or otherwise you prevent them from ever prospering. And so that's going to be the danger. I, there's going to be a strong incentive either for a legal secondary market or a, a so-called gray market for people, you know, transportation if for people that don't want to have the vaccine, for instance. On the other hand, I think, you know, the reality is that a virus is going to do what a virus does. And so it is eventually going to work its way into the most of the population, the healthy population. We're going to build up an immunity to it, whether we get the, the vaccine or not. Um, and so the kind of pressure to do that, I think, will be off. That's why I think they're wanting us to do it all right now, because after we get through a couple of real full respiratory seasons of this virus, I think it's going to, it will work its way back down into the background noise, just like the cold virus does. And so um, that's the reality is that we will deal, there'll be a cold flu and coronavirus season from now on. And, um, and I think the population will adapt. 
I agree. And I think there's a, a huge opportunity, perhaps a, a, an opportunity like never before seen in human history for entrepreneurs and people to uh, anticipate and mm -hmm. and uh, serve these emerging needs, especially if, if you're mission driven and your goal is not just a big buyout because yeah. if your goal is a big buyout you're likely going to end up creating something that just gets you know sucked into the machine or right. ate up ate up by the beast you know and that very change that you may have got um got into you know that business in order to create and bring to fruition is then mm -hmm. becomes jeopardized you know and and again it comes it comes down to the morality of the people and us holding ourselves to you know not to harp but the mm -hmm. the, the the laws of god natural law rather than than the laws of man and doing things for more than just these debt squares you know this this uh fiat currency that's not backed by anything um, absolutely Dr. J. Richards, this has been an awesome conversation. I've really had a lot of fun, and uh, I think you shared some amazing stuff with with our listeners. Um, guys, support Dr. Richards by picking up the price of Panic on Amazon or wherever you buy books. And um, yeah, Dr. Richards, please let's let's stay in touch and Definitely. keep me update with updated with things you're working on. And as stuff goes on, maybe we'll do a part two. Terrific! Great to be with you. What's up, guys? Anthony here, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show. One of my favorite things to do is helping men and women like you feel what it's like with the body you've always wanted and all-day energy that starts the moment you wake up and doesn't quit. Over the past decade, we've created a proprietary health assessment that helps me to identify the unique toxicities and deficiencies that may be holding you back from the life that you deserve. And what we've discovered in doing this with now thousands of CEOs, executives, professional athletes, businessmen, Hollywood celebrities, and entrepreneurs is that there's always room for improvement and optimization. Whether you're already performing at a high level or you have that feeling inside your heart that you're capable of more, the single fastest way to unlock your potential is to upgrade your mind and your body. And there's no program on earth that does that faster or to a greater magnitude than our one-on-one -on -one consulting program at www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching. We start with our proprietary health assessment that screens you for vitamin deficiencies like A, D, magnesium, iron, etc., high cholesterol and heart disease, high blood pressure, digestive disorders, hidden infections like Lyme, Epstein-Barr, parasites, SIBO, candida, and more that can just drain your energy in the background, especially if you don't know about them. Anxiety, depression, and cognitive disorders, autoimmune disease, adrenal fatigue, thyroid issues, mold toxicity, heavy metals, environmental toxins, and other genetic risk factors like MTHFR, APOE status, your glutathione production, and many more. We even recommend the specific tests that I use with my one-on-one -on -one clients if they're relevant for you in figuring out your biological age and identifying those key areas and opportunities that can take your life to the next level. From there, we create a customized game plan along with a personalized supplement protocol to help you optimize your weight and energy at the cellular level. And for our platinum clients, we even include a personalized workshop with me in Delray Beach, Florida. Most of the year, this program's full with a waiting list, but we just had a couple spots open up and I wanted to offer them to the listeners of the Biohacking Secrets show first. So if you're interested in seeing what it might look like for us to work together, head over to www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching. That's www 
www.bioachackingsecrets.com forward slash C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G and fill out the short application form. If you're pre-approved, you'll be given the opportunity to book a time to connect with someone on our team and see if it's a fit. Thank you so much for being a part of this community, and I look forward to potentially going on this journey together. 